0: So now I get the privilege of, in, of introducing my husband who is going to speak tonight, Russ Folkler. Yay. And if I were to just um, say something about him, it would be um, he's a really kind person. And I learned a lot about kindness from Russ and his family, and I really, really appreciate that. So thank you, Russ. And I know whatever he, um, what I was going to speak on tonight is just going to reveal more of the kindness of God to you too. So here he is. Thank you, Susan. So, Lord, I I ask that um, you take what I'm sharing and translate it into what each person needs to receive. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. Jesus, we want you to be glorified and exalted and lifted high. Mm. So, how many of you heard Susan's talk last week, or heard it on podcast? Yeah, wasn't that great? Yeah, I I know it sounds like it might be nepotism to (laughs) praise your wife, but... (laughs) Actually, Susan doesn't respond much to flattery. Um, (laughs) um, Someone suggested I got a good dinner for it, but... Really, um, I listened to it and got a lot out of it the second time. Highly Highly encourage, And it also sparked me to want to talk a bit more about some kind of related topics. And so the name of my talk is The Path and Gate of Life. And that's a gate near our house, actually. When Jesus finished the Sermon on the Mount in the end of chapter 7, he said, These words I speak to you, not, and this is the message translation, so it's it's a bit in the vernacular, not, these these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, not like homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. And when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent he was living everything he was saying. Quite the contrast to their religion teachers. It was the best teaching they had ever heard. Isn't that cool? They they knew in their hearts that what he was teaching was what he was living. And, and that's really transformational, is it, when someone does that. When you don't just get, you know, good information, but somebody who's living what they're teaching. Especially when, when they're teaching something as really challenging as what the Sermon on the Mount was about. Have you, have you ever read, read Sermon on, a Mount, on the Mount and went, how could I do that? <laughs> I mean, how many of you thought that? Like, whoa, way out of reach. <laughs> but it gives us a really good picture of what the kingdom is like, even if we're not capable yet to fully live that way. So be, in, be encouraged. This is one of the scriptures I found really challenging. Enter by the narrow gate. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. That's kind of a hard saying. Now, what, who, what is the gate? What is the narrow way? Jesus. That's right. It's actually about Jesus, isn't it? In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. So Jesus is the gate. He's also he's also the door. He said in John 10:7, I am the door. If anyone enters by me he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. I would say the main point Jesus was trying to make here was tying your life to mine in an ongoing relationship will not be easy or popular. He was letting them know that, the, that life, even life abundant, isn't going to be easy or popular. Anyone can say an amen to that? Yeah. <laughs> but it is life. Yeah. He has the words of life. Life is in him, and he gives us his life. Now, some take um, this message, this particular scripture, and also a parallel one in, in Luke to mean that only a few people are ever going to be saved. Has anyone ever said that, you know, kind of said that to you? Yeah, and that's, to me that's really sad. Because uh, only, only a chapter later in Luke, Luke chapter 15, there are three stories about God going out of his way to find what was lost. They're parables of the lost sheep, The lost coin, the woman seeking the lost coin, and rejoicing when she found it, and also the return of the lost son and how in the celebration that happened. So, and and as we all know, also know from John the Apostle and the Apostle Paul, they make it clear that Jesus came to save and reconcile us to Father God, not just a few, if everybody, if possible, right? That the whole world could be saved. Just a bit later in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about false prophets who do remarkable things in Jesus' name but are independent from a true relationship with him. You guys remember that? Am I striking a bell? So even if we do things that are cool and look like Jesus but we're doing them independently of him, how does he feel about that? It's like, I never knew you. Yet that's our bent, isn't it? We really would like to do everything independently. We don't want to depend on anybody else, especially in America, especially in America. Here's another part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light if you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust <laughs> your body is a dank cellar if you pull the blinds on your windows what a dark life you will have Bill's doing a great squinty-eyed am I, how am I doing? Are, am I doing a good squinty eye too? it's because of your words oh my gosh It looks really good on here. <laughs> Trust me. No need to squint any further. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have to figure out a different color scheme. <laughs> so this, this slide, even though you can't quite see the words. So word nerd, uh, note itself self, do not use yellow on gray. No, do not... Do not do it. How we perceive, how we judge. These are the ne- next two slides. You'll be squinting on the next one too, I'm afraid. <laughs> but this is this is the, the Greek idiom about having an evil eye is really about having not being generous, about being stingy, about about um, being distrustful. That's what there was a Greek idiom about having the evil eye that was about. The opposite of generosity. But if our eyes are full of light, if if our eyes see with trust and belief and generosity, then our whole body is full of light. Okay. Not quite so bad. All right. I wonder what happened. Another related passage in the Sermon on the Mount, you're all familiar with this judge not, and you will not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We've all heard that one before. And I'm not sharing it to be, to be condemning at all. But I think it's a really important point that Jesus is trying to make with both these passages. Susan shared beautifully last week about the way Jesus judges. A way that brings restoration, reconciliation, of hearts and relationships, right? was not that beautiful? Yeah, that's how Jesus does. Jesus wants to restore us. He wants to reconcile us. He wants us to connect with our true hearts. But there's also a way where we tend to judge because of the fall of Adam that is very destructive. Indeed, I think that is part of the destruction that comes to those who travel the wide paths and the, try and go through the wide gates, because it's as easy as pie for us to judge others and ourselves in a condemning way, wouldn't you say? That's true. Yeah, I, I keep. In fact, as I was preparing for this, I'll tell you the story later. I kept on catching myself judging other people. <laughs> Darn! <laughs> I'm glad to hear some of you are laughing with me. <laughs> Sometimes judging is a snare. When the story I'm telling myself about a person leads me to decide what they deserve and don't deserve, and what their value and worth is, that's a problem, isn't it? Then my eye has become evil, if you will. And uh, here's my story. My recent story: We have a neighbor who lives down the hill from us, and she goes to a um, fairly conservative church, nice lady, but I, I uh, and I, I enjoy talking with her when I see her. But I always, I, in the back of my mind, it's always been a little bit of uh, trying to convince myself to be patient with her. And I said, and I always found myself judging her like that again, just a few days ago. <coughs> Excuse me. And then she tells me about how she spent the last four months. Driving every other week down to Fresno to take care of her sister in law who's dying because her brother was too incapacitated to take care of his wife and she went down instead. So, how big did I feel after that? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, ooh, I wasn't seeing with your eyes, was I, Jesus? Yeah, I wasn't. and And Jesus does not Jesus is not telling us to turn off our brain when he, he tells us not to judge right did you Have you figured that one out <laughs> yeah, you know jesus is not saying don't i 'm not telling you to turn off your brain i 'm not asking you to ignore evil, I'm not asking you to ignore the discernment that your spirit is telling you about people the The question isn 't that in fact, just the next few few more verses. After this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about not throwing your pearls before swine, not giving precious, vulnerable things to people who have no value for it, right? So that would be requiring discernment, and you could call that judging in a way, but he's saying, do this. He's also saying, pay attention if there are false prophets in your midst, and here's how you figure out it's a false prophet. Even though they're doing wondrous things, check the fruit in their life. If if the fruit is not in their lives of a relationship with Jesus, then you have reason to suspect receiving from them. So Jesus isn't saying don't do any judging or discerning. Everybody shake their head. (laughs) Sometimes when I've, I've read that verse when I was younger, I thought, oh, I'm just supposed to turn off my brain and not pay attention to anything. And that doesn't work very well. And I know... I know some of you, including my wife, who have a gift of discernment and, and tried to turn it off because you thought you were condemning and judging people, but that doesn't work well either, does it? <laughs> it's a purified gift of discernment. is a very important aspect of the body of Jesus. We need it, so don't turn it off. Okay, moving forward quickly. It's a great grace for us when God challenges the stories we tell ourselves to justify condemnation, to justify hatred and jealousy, or to, or to dismiss the value of a person, including our own value. It's a great grace when God challenges us about that. Have you ever been challenged about the stories you've been telling yourself? Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Be rejoice in that. And... I'm going to show a really quick, short, I should say, clip from the shack. Now, this is, I wish this was longer. This doesn't really include enough to really make the whole point, but we can talk about it. How many of you all saw the shack? Very good. The rest of you need to get saved. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. (laughs) All right. You ready?
1: What about the man who preys on innocent little girls? Daddy! Daddy! Okay, that's Is that man guilty? I would damn him now. And what of his father? The man who twisted him into this deviant monster. I would damn him too. How can you stop there? Doesn't the legacy of brokenness go all the way back to Adam? And what about God? Isn't he at fault? He set all this emotion, especially if he knew the outcome. You want me to say it? Absolutely. God is to blame. Well, if it's so easy for you to judge God, you must choose one of your children to spend eternity in heaven. The other will go to hell.
0: Eek. Like I said, I wish that was that was a little longer. That really didn't quite take it all the way there. But Mac realizes that he doesn't want to judge after all. He doesn't want to sit in the seat of that kind of judgment and condemnation, even though he has really good reasons for being really, really angry with the man who killed his daughter. Yeah. Many of us have been taught or have assumed a punishment-based view of the story of the fall of Adam. This le- in this, as, and this lens, this assumption of, of a punishment-based view, is that God's just, justice is mostly to punish disobedience and bad behavior. And this is carried over to the theology that many folks have today of, of punishing atonement. God had to punish somebody and so Jesus said, I'll, I'll be the one to be, you can punish me. That's kind of called a penal or punishment atonement. <clears throat> and I talked about this in a talk I gave long ago called Two Versions of the Gospel. Highly recommended. <laughs> Actually, I, I thought it was worth, I thought it was important, so that's why I shared it. Now, here's a different perspective about about the fall. This is from uh, C. Baxter Kruger, who wrote a book called The Shack Revisited. And it contains a lot of really wonderful theology in a way that you can digest. It's accessible. Yeah, Let's see. We go creation has its existence its meaning and blessing in Jesus so he's starting to talk about creation the creation of God in the early days I'll say that again creation has its existence meaning and blessing in Jesus we know from the Bible that all things are from him and through him and to him So this is about Jesus. And Adam and Eve were given a real place in his lordship. Adam and Eve had a really special place in God's plan, in in Jesus for creation. Creation was to find itself, so to speak, to hit its stride through their love and leadership. Adam and Eve, first in their relationship of trust, love, and fellowship with the Lord, and then in their relationship with each other, and then in their role as mediators of his blessing in creation, formed the living content of what Baxter calls the womb of the incarnation. In other words, Adam and Eve were intended to have this beautiful dominion, this beautiful stewardship of the earth, and bring it into this beautiful fullness Through their relationship with Jesus. And it is here that the whole plan almost fell apart at the beginning, or so it would seem. The cunning serpent lied about the character of God. Adam and Eve believed the lie and fell into doubting the goodness of the Lord. And such doubt as to the heart of the Lord took them into a singular disaster. for it obliterated their unearthly assurance into the vacuum of this, no longer having this assurance that God's good and he's carrying Rose guilt and shame, fear and anxiety, and terrifying insecurity, all of which became a lethal rue. I didn't know what that word was, but it means a mixture of Fat. And flour are used for making sauces. Can anyone pronounce it right? R-O-U-X. Did I do it right? Awesome. All right. So you, you cooks know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's used for making sauces. But this lethal rue in their souls, soon to poison the whole dish of their existence and that of creation. As Sarayu in the shack says to Mackenzie, you humans, so little in your own eyes, you are truly blind to your own place in the creation. Having chosen the ravaged path of independence, you don't even comprehend that you are dragging the entire creation along with you. We saw evidence of that, of course, in the, the account of, of the fall when suddenly the, the thorns and the thistles came up and it became a lot harder to, uh, to till the soil creation started responding to what happened inside of Adam and Eve. If the evil one is to have his own world, which appears to be his dream, I mean, what is he trying to do? Then he is limited to hijacking and exploiting or misusing the Trinitarian life shared with us. He can do none of this without our permission or against our wills. In other words, he, has, he can't do it on his own. He's actually, because of the place that humanity was given by God, Satan's way has to be through us. So he lies, he deceives, he confu- confuses us, so we willingly, though perhaps unwittingly, give ourselves to operate in the diabolical matrix of unbelief, confusion, and meaningless darkness. His chief deception is to invite us to doubt the Lord's goodness. We've all felt that, haven't we? That invitation to doubt the Lord's goodness. Creating insecurity and anxiety in us, which in turn drives us to independent action. There's that independent thing again, isn't it? We get, we get insecure, we get scared, we doubt, and now we're just going to try and take everything, everything on our own, aren't we? Yeah, we still live under that temptation. All of this is then shrewdly woven into the lie that we are separated from the triune God. Some of the songs you played were about there's no separation tonight. That was so good. The lie is, and that's what that some of the churches taught, is that God got so disgusted with humanity that he separated himself from humanity. And that is the lie. The truth is we miss we we trusted the lie we believed the lie that Satan said that God can't be trusted and we separated ourselves from God but the Trinity never ever separated from us in the place of trust and love and security rose doubt and then fear which inevitably turned them upon themselves they became self referential which means they became the source or the kind of the fulcrum for their their version of reality instead of looking to to father and son and holy spirit as sort of the source of truth and life they started trying to find it in themselves and so they chose independence over relationship they became self-centered making themselves in their own judgment their point of reference and discernment rather than their relationship with the Lord. Is this making sense? Yeah, good. Because I think it's really powerful. We've made our own judgment our point of reference and discernment rather than our relationship with the Lord. They did it. We still do it sometimes, don't we? More than I'd like to admit. And believing the lie of the evil one, they became blind They could no longer perceive the real truth about God or themselves, and so they hid from the Lord. This is is the really surprising thing. I hadn't thought of it this way before, but this is what Baxter writes. Why? Why did they hide? Clearly they were afraid, but afraid of what? Of course, their hiding comes on the heels of their outright disobedience, and most people would assume they were afraid of God's punishment. But then again, how could Adam and Eve stand in the garden, Day after day, the recipients of such astonishing blessing and love and be afraid of the Lord. This wonderful relationship they've had with him for all this time, and now they're afraid. The same one that they've had this loving relationship and fellowship with all the, all this time. <clears throat> had God changed? Had the Lord who created Adam and Eve out of sheer grace and love and poured such astounding blessing upon them suddenly made an about-face, and had ceased to love? What do you think? No. Adam rejected his own brokenness onto God's face. He tarred his father's face with the brush of his own angst. He took a paintbrush and dipped it into a cesspool of his own double-mindedness and guilt and shame and painted an entirely new picture of a God, little g, with it. It was with this little G-God, created in his own darkened imagination, not the Lord, that he feared and from whom he hid. Yeah. Adam was scared to death. How could he not be? He believed himself to be standing guilty before a divine being who was as unstable as he is. In other words, he's looking at God through now his his, his projections of himself. From this moment, our shame will disfigure the Father's heart. Our projection of our fear will rewrite the rules of his care. This is really a wonderful sentence. He will continue to bless us beyond our wildest dreams, but in our mythology, we will never see it. Brent has read this passage before in I think it's the last battle in the Narnia series, where the, these dwarves that are very self-centered and selfish, um, just sit around and 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 tell each other what they believe, which is ignoring what Aslan is trying to tell them. <laughs> they don't trust Aslan, they don't trust anybody but the dwarves, and they're ignoring the help and the opportunity that was that's right outside the circle of their their belief system. Anybody remember reading that? Yeah, that's kind of like us sometimes. (laughs) We can be completely blind to the grace and goodness of God if we don't have eyes for it, if we don't have eyes to see his goodness, if we project onto him our own twistedness instead. So, as an act of sheer grace, of keen awareness of Adam's Oops, I'm running a little late for the kids. Um, I'll I'll just finish up close to this. Um, An act of sheer grace, of keen awareness of Adam's fear and identification with him in his pain, and as an act of determination to meet and relate with Adam in his fallen state, the Lord accepted Adam in his shame and related to him as he was. God clothed them. Such an act was not about God or divine need to be appeased. It was an act of love, of acceptance, of real relationship flowing out of his determination to bring the purpose of adoption to fruition. So that's, that's kind, that kind of changes the picture, at least it did for me. And there was more, but for sake of time, I'll I'll close this up soon. So, from that place, from the point of the fall, we have Adam and Eve projecting things onto God, living in their own in their own kind of darkened imaginations, fear, shame, instability, and this is the, the situation of the of the of the race of the part of the creation that was supposed to help steward the rest of the earth. But as we know, even from the foundation of the world, Jesus was crucified. God always had a plan for how to address it. But it was the most vulnerable, personal, excruciating plan any of us can imagine. His heart was to meet us where we are, to come as a man, to subject himself to the experiences of humanity And also for the brutality, to expose himself to the brutality of humanity for anyone who actually has some light in them. Jesus came into our darkness to be with us so that we could then follow him out and live with him forever. Live with him here forever. Live with him also on this earth. Thank you, Lord. So thank, thank you for your amazing plan. Thank you for your goodness to us. And we ask for your help not to judge, <laughs> not to judge in a condemning way, but to, to turn to you and ask you to show us your perspective on people and, our, and your perspective on ourselves too when we're tempted to condemn ourselves. Read one more scripture. So how does it what does that look like? This is from Romans 12, 1 to 2 in the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So that's what Apostle Paul wants you to do. It sounds like good advice. (laughs) So thank you, Jesus, for your goodness. Thank you, Father, for your great love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for revealing Jesus to us and being our best friends. And help us to walk even more closely with you. Amen. Yeah. Thank you. Parents you can get your kids if you haven't already, and you're free to enjoy fellowship. Um, I'll be up here if you'd like some prayer. Maybe Susan too. And you're also free to buy some stuff from Domali. Yeah.